Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This program is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series, featuring David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined again by David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series, From Dialogues. David, as viewers and listeners know, is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. Today's episode is being recorded two days after this week's midterm elections in the United States. Although we're still waiting on some key results, I thought it would be a good opportunity to get David's perspective on the election's winners and losers and the potential consequences for American policy and politics. David, thanks for joining us for another episode of From Dialogues. Thank you so much. Let's start with the winners. Who, in your view, are the winners in this week's results? Well, first... And foremost, President Biden, the Biden administration, and the Democratic Party. It's still not clear whether they will ultimately retain either House of Congress, but pretty evidently, they have shaved their defeat to a remarkable degree. And it is, it's still very conceivable they ultimately retain the Senate. There will be a runoff in the state of Georgia that may decide control of the Senate. Not impossible they hold the House. Unlikely, but not impossible. And uh, it's it, the turnout and especially among Democratic constituencies and especially young voters, it was a huge payoff for them. In particular, something that it looks like something that I thought was both bad policy and bad politics, which was the student loan relief. I, I think it remains bad policy because uh, if you, you don't do debt relief without addressing the reasons that people got into so much debt in the first place. Otherwise, you're just creating, you're giving the colleges permission to keep on overcharging their students and behaving in the uh, sometimes quite unconscionable ways that the colleges have, have come. So I thought it was a bad policy for that reason. But I also thought it would not pay off politically. And that was clearly wrong. That the, you turn out among, I don't, we don't know exactly why young people turned out, but they turned out, they did turn out in huge numbers and voted Democratic in huge numbers. Next winner, there are not many Republican winners, but there is one big one. And that is uh, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis who got rewarded for many things, but I think especially for his policy of reopening the schools in the fall of 2020. At the national level, DeSantis is seen as a kind of truculent, argumentative figure who picks culture wars um, and punishes enemies and takes revenge on the Disney Corporation. But in his state, he is mostly known for that one big decision, keeping the schools open, and it paid off for him politically, and it's paid off for a generation, I think, of Florida school children. Let me take up that particular point. I wonder, David, if DeSantis's impressive victory represents something of a path forward for the Republican Party. It, it might be described as a synthesis of Trump's hard-edged populism, particularly with the media, and as you mentioned, certain cultural issues, 
with a degree of managerial competence and a pragmatism on issues like public services or, or even abortion. Is DeSantisism, for lack of a better term, the future of Republican politics? Well, there isn't a DeSantisism yet. A lot of it is very opportunistic, and a lot of it has been about um, connecting with the base of the Republican Party in ways that are probably counterproductive. You know, that he's been engaged in this kind of theater of dominance uh, performance. I, I think that's quite off-putting to a lot of people. And one, one of the questions over his political future will be, you know, can he behave less like a jerk uh, in, in future? Uh, because uh, when the school issue is not at the foremost, I mean, that one of the things that was true in, tw- in 2022 is a lot of gratuitously jerky candidates. People just were, you know, unnecessarily obnoxious, really paid a price for that. Um, it, this is, an, uh, you know, it turns out that you always have this question like, I don't like it, but maybe my neighbors like it. No, if you don't like it, your your neighbors don't like it either. And I don't think he's found a way forward yet on the pragmatic, on a broader range of pragmatic issues. And he hasn't found a way forward on abortion. And that looks really important because when the Supreme Court struck down Roe versus Wade, they made abortion policy suddenly very salient. And Republicans have been way overplaying their hands. They've been talking about national bans. They have implemented these extraordinarily punitive state laws. and I don't know that the Republican Party is ready yet to think they they need a big pivot on this question of what it means to be a pro-life party when states actually have reacquired the power to regulate abortion to the utmost. Okay, so if Joe Biden, the Democratic Party, and to a certain extent, Ron DeSantis are are the winners of this week's elections, who are the losers? Well, the the, the number one, the the evident losers are the um, congressional Republican leadership. We're going to get to Donald Trump in a moment. But remember, that's sort of a collateral. The the big loss is Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the Republicans in the House, was counting on being Speaker of the House today. It's Thursday. He's not Speaker of the House. And he won't be Speaker of the House probably Friday. And he may never be Speaker of the House. And if he does become Speaker of the House, he's going to become Speaker of the House in a caucus where his margin will be tiny and will depend on some of the biggest weirdos in American life. And so suddenly he's going to find himself working for Marjorie Taylor Greene in a way that he never imagined because he's going to need her two or three or four like-minded weirdos. Mitch McConnell, less of a loser, partly because Senate minority leader is also very, being the leader of the the second party in the Senate is a much better job than being leader of the second party in the House. Also, McConnell had foreseen this coming and had warned and warned again. He had this formula, candidate quality matters, by which he means quit picking these obvious dogs to run in winnable races. Herschel Walker, Blake Masters, you know, J- J.D. Vance, who we're going to talk about in a few minutes, ran 20 points behind the Republican candidate for governor in a state. And, you know, these, these are so he still won. But it's just a margin of the disc. He was, he's a 20 point. He's a 20 point discount candidate as compared to a normal Republican in the state of Wisconsin. Oh, sorry, Ohio. What about progressives, David? Don't Democratic victories in Pennsylvania, New York and New Hampshire affirm Joe Biden's basic insight that the Democratic Party's sweet spot involves eschewing the progressive excesses of the so-called squad? Well, one of the big warnings of the Democrats is what happened in the state of Wisconsin, where there was a weak Republican incumbent, Ron Johnson, and there was a big Democratic battle. And they picked a man named, um, I won't go into personalities, but they picked a candidate who was various, probably the most identified with the defund the police movement, who had said positive things about the Iranian regime. I'm just uh, a Bernie Sanders guy. And he narrowly lost 
And one of the questions that Democrats have to think about is if they nominated a more electable figure in Wisconsin, they might have taken that seat. They also have to look with great alarm, I think, at the results from New York State, where there was a surprisingly strong Republican performance in New York State. It didn't do as well as it could have because the Republican candidate for governor, Lee Zeldin, was actually um, a perfectly plausible person. But for opportunistic reasons, he had drawn way closer to Donald Trump than was really wise in the state of New York. But despite that, and he, uh, he, he did well, the party did well up and down the ticket. And that's clear, pretty clearly a vote about public order. And New Yorkers are, the quality of life in the city of New York and environs has really sharply deteriorated from what it was under Mayors Giuliani and Bloomberg. And New Yorkers don't like it. They don't, they don't like Trump. They don't want to have a national abortion ban, but they don't want to see homeless people killing people's dogs in Prospect Park. I'm not making this case up. It really happened with total impunity and having the police for two months after say we can't find the guy when everybody in the neighborhood is saying there he is, the man who killed the dog and, and, and assaulted the owner. You mentioned J.D. Vance. I, I, I want to take up his candidacy and, and his political future. Um, as you mentioned, David, Vance won the Ohio Senate seat, although his margin was smaller than uh, the gubernatorial outcome, to say nothing of past election cycles. Vance is someone who previously wrote for you when you managed the site from Forum. And he's gone undergone something of an ideological and temperamental shift in the context of this primary and general election from a pretty conventional conservative to a Trump-like candidate. I, I note, though, that he didn't acknowledge Trump in his post-election speech. And, and so I guess the question for you, David, is now that Vance is elected, do you think he'll be able to rehabilitate himself or has he crossed some sort of political threshold from which he can't come back? Yeah. Well, po- politics is, has been called the endless adventure. There are no terminus points. It, it, the future is always available to be made. But he, he's got two different challenges, one less difficult, one more difficult. The less difficult challenge is to change his focus on, on many issues. Um, you know, he would go on the Tucker Carlson show and be very dismissive of the Ukrainian cause. He is now very beholden to uh, Mitch McConnell, who gave him, who found for him the money that got him his reelection after both Donald Trump and his previous patron, Peter Thiel, cut him off. He, he, uh, I imagine he's going to execute a pivot on Ukraine and similar kinds of issues. He's going to support McConnell, having previously threatened not to do it. The, the challenges he's going to have is he also deve- developed, I mean, those who read Hillbilly Elegy, those, uh, those of us who knew him personally, remember from a decade ago, a very winning person um, who had, with an extraordinary human story and great gifts of intellect and temperament and character. And then he performed the, the role of a Trumpified jerk, I mean, obnoxious and nasty. You know, the, the, one of the interesting tests were people who could not forbear saying something dismissive, insulting about the terrible assault on Paul Pelosi, Speaker of the House of Representatives. You know, who would do that? And yet a lot of Republicans did. And can you, having performed the role of this combative person for the Fox audience, can you reinvent, and and people have a much stronger fix on your personality than you do on the issues. You can change the issues, but now he's going to have to work on convincing Ohio that he's a senator they can be proud of, after having been a candidate, it's hard to be proud of. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was 
dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. I want to take up another issue you previously raised. If the GOP does indeed take control of the House, will the slimmer than expected majority elevate or undermine the leverage of the Republican caucus's most radical voices? Well, that's a function of of leadership. Under a strong and determined leader, their leverage would be lessened. That because there there are two paths for if if Kevin McCarthy is the speaker, he's got two paths to get things passed. Pass number one is to let's say there are five or six of these wild people is to give them everything they want and to let them let them take the party hostage and threaten to blow it up and to truckle to them and appease them. And that's what a weak leader will do. A strong leader will say, you know what? There are 30 Democrats for everything that I personally want to do. So I, not only am I, are you not going to take me hostage, but I'm taking you hostage. I, I can put together improvised majority on every important measure. I don't have, also, I don't have a president whose measures I have to pass. I don't have to pass anything. But if I, when I do have to, if I have to pass a budget resolution or a defense bill or any of those things, I can pick up 30 Democrats. So let me know when you're prepared to behave like a grown up. Uh, until then, no committee assignments, no assistance to your reelection. That's what Sam Rayburn would have done. And so this is going to be a test of is McCarthy a strong leader or a weak one? And so far through his career, he's proved himself a weak leader, not a very forceful, not a very intelligent leader and trapped in this conceit, which is nowhere written down, that he must always pass things with Republican votes only. Or you can add Democratic votes, but you can never trade. You can never say, I'm going to give up five extreme Republicans and pick up 30 moderate Democrats. Although leaders in the 20th century would do that kind of calculation all the time. Let me ask a related question about another potential winner or loser stemming from these results, and that's the people of Ukraine. To what extent do the results, namely the possibility of a, a new Republican majority in the House, threaten the ability of the U.S. government to continue to provide financing and weapons to Ukraine? Well, they have polarized the situation within Congress, which is Ukraine had a very good Senate election that the uh, anti almost all the anti-Ukraine candidates, especially Blake Masters of Arizona, who is the most hostile look like they're going to lose. J.D. Vance, who is hostile to Ukrainian aid, is completely dependent on Mitch McConnell's pact to save his career. He's going to, I think, pivot on that issue. And Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, if he ends up as majority leader, he's a very capable and effective leader. And he's made it clear he is absolutely solid on this issue. And people forget this, but when Finland and Sweden applied for membership in NATO, McConnell traveled to Finland and Sweden and met privately with the leaders of both those countries and assured them that their applications would face no difficulty in the U.S. Senate. He was minority leader, so he had a possibility to mess mess things up. He gave them his word. The word was kept. The applications went through without a hitch. So uh, Ukraine is going to be, and and McConnell and Biden have a pretty strong personal relationship. They worked together for a long time in the Senate. So I think, and the Senate is more important to Ukraine than, than the House, but the House is going to be a problem now, especially if the Republicans end up in the majority. Uh, there's some polling. It's not conclusive, but it's suggestive that, uh, that about half of Republican primary voters now think that the United States has done too much for Ukraine. That's that's a, a, an idea that they have absorbed from their more radical leaders, from hosts on Fox News like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram, and from Donald Trump himself. 
One thing I suspect our Canadian viewers and listeners would be interested in is your expectations uh, about the potential outcomes from a divided Congress over the next couple of years. Are there areas for potential bipartisanship? Or, David, is it more likely that Washington once again slides into paralysis? Look, there is a huge opportunity for bipartisan. That's actually the smart play. And because, you know, what that, the smart play, especially if, uh, if McCarthy is the leader, is for him to work out a kind of informal agreement with 20 or 30 of the more moderate. And because the Democrats had such a good election, there are going to be a lot of moderate Democrats in from uh, Republican-leaning districts who could be available for, you know, clean budget resolutions, defense bills, things like that. So that's a po- that is that possibility is there. And the Republican Party has had... Another lesson after 21, after 20, after 2018, that Trump style politics is a dead end and that people don't want this confrontation. But all all that said, that depends on people's choices. From a Canadian point of view, there are two things that especially bear watching. One is the risk of a fight over the debt ceiling early in the new year that could threaten the international financial system. We had, we've talked about this before that that happened in 2011. It can easily be miscalculated. The opportunities that, I mean, the, the voters have sent a clear message, don't do that garbage. But McCarthy's position in the House may mean that he may feel impelled to do it. The second thing that Canadians want to think about is we really need to revisit NAFTA and to bring it into the digital era, to bring it into the era of streaming services. That opportunity was thrown away in the Trump years. Uh, it's been neglected in the Biden years. We need somebody to have a trade agenda because uh, NAFTA is, is a great thing, a great accomplishment for all the countries of North America. But it, it was negotiated in the 1980s and, the, and you know, mended a little bit in the 1990s. And the agreement, the USMCA agreement, doesn't address the important modern issues that need to be addressed. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about Donald Trump and his impact on these races and, and perhaps more fundamentally what it means for his political standing heading into the 2024 presidential cycle. Well, I think it's pretty clear at this point that the Republican donor elite, the owners and programmers of Fox News are pretty sick of him and blame him. That They always thought it was a free throw and it turned out, no, it was a very expensive throw. Maybe very, very expensive. So, but we don't yet know whether his connection to the Republican primary base has been broken. But Donald Trump has also had this power, which is he is a hostage taker. He does not, he is, he is quite prepared to destroy the house if he can't rule the house. And that, whereas his opponents have never said the same thing. I mean, remember the whole Donald Trump episode could have been headed off if Republican donors and Republican organizers in 2016 when Donald Trump emerges as the nominee and said, look, we all know you, you're a criminal. You shouldn't be president. We don't love Hillary Clinton, but we've dealt with her. We'll be, you know, it'll be a third Democratic presidential term. She's certainly going to, she'll lose the House in 2018. She'll be defeated in 2020. Let's just, let's just drink the bitter brew. But to head, it's, it's, you can always, there, there've been a lot of elections in American history. You know, you don't win them all. We're going to lose this one. If they had done that, it would have been a different thing. They, they were never willing to do to Trump what he was willing to do to them. And that was the secret of his power. And that's going to be the question in 2024. One of the things that would, if, if you're a serious big backer of DeSantis, you, the, the thing you ought to be doing right now is getting together with a bunch of your fellow donor friends and other people say, we're not going to repeat. If you're the, we're not going to repeat the mistake. If you are the nominee in 2024, we, our money stays home. We vote for Biden. We'd rather have him than you. So just enter that into your thinking before you decide whether you're going to run again. But 
He will. They won't. And so he's going to run in 2024. And we will discover once again whether the donor and House leadership and the TV leadership of the Republican Party are men or worms. Oh, one, one final question, David. You know, dating back to, two, you know, even before 2008, you've been a, a kind of heterodox voice calling on Republicans and conservatives to modernize their policy agenda to both reflect the, the interested needs of Republican voters, as well as a, a broader swath of voters, but also to reflect uh, the issues and challenges of, of contemporary era coming out of these results. What are the kind of policy insights or policy signals to a Republican Party that, for all intents and purposes, ran a, a kind of anti-policy or policy invisible campaign? Well, one of the things that has been, as you point this out to me, that has been a little vexing to me over the past 15 years of my life is I also remain a very orthodox conservative thinker on a lot of issues. It's just the things I'm orthodox on have not been salient, but they, because there, there's a reminder here that Republicans important measures of Republican orthodoxy really work. Criminals belong in prison. Streets should be safe. A casual disorder is not victimless. Parents do not want to take their children past addicts who are shooting drugs into their arms in broad daylight on a residential street. You know, that, that none of that should be allowed. I think another way I'm, I've, I'm orthodox and that this is, is, you know, if you're in the worst recession since the Great Depression, Absolutely, government needs to keep up demand. But if you are coming out of a huge injection of capital liquidity, of liquidity and spending during a pandemic, if you don't put, put the brakes to that when the pandemic is over, you're going to get inflation. And we need now, this is, this is exactly the moment where now with today's interest rates and what it does to the cost of servicing debt, there is no choice but to bring fiscal plans back into alignment and not with higher taxes, but with lower spending. The trade agenda needs to be revived. That Europe is heading into a recession. Our friends in Britain are abandoned post-Brexit. They are in no major trading blocks. NAFTA is out of date and needs to be modernized. There needs to be a trade. I mean, a lot of those things. Um, and we also, I think, here's another thing I'm going to be orthodox about. Through the hillbilly elegy years, to quote J.D. Vett, there was this tremendous commiseration with the problems of rural America, the, white, the abandoned white working class, and, ascent, and as awareness that the inequities of the American voting system also give them a lot of political power. So if they're unhappy, they can wreck the system. But, you know, it's increasingly, we see this with the Biden administration. They've taken the view, we, in order to appease this relatively small group, we, you know, we need protectionism. We need, we need to do all kinds that we need to buy American. And, I think we need to go back to saying, you know, the answer to the problems of rural America is dynamism and mobility. People need to go to the jobs. The jobs don't go to the people. This is a classic problem in Canadian life. So those are some of the orthodoxies hold true, but the, but the non-orthodoxies also hold true, which is with student debt relief, we've seen what the predatory practices of colleges are doing to the American middle class. If the students are getting the debt relief, the colleges have to have some sense knocked into them. And that's going to take government action. I've, I've got some ideas about that. And the other is um, Obamacare, as I've been saying since 2010, really is here to stay. You have to make a success of this. There is now, in effect, a government guarantee of health insurance for Americans. That need, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. It needs to be made meaningful, but it also needs to be made affordable. And that's going to take some effective action of, of government. And the Republicans need to get past this idea First, they said, we're going to repeal Obamacare and replace it with something we'll think of later. And then they said, we're going to repeal Obamacare and not replace it. And now they've stopped saying anything. They have no health care policy at all. This is probably, from 
millions of Americans, the overriding, overwhelming concern they have in public life. What is going to happen if I get sick? How do I, how do I get care? How do I pay for it? A political party that wants to compete needs to have an answer to that question. I'll just add in parentheses, you're, you're thinking on carbon taxes and border tariffs with respect to carbon is an, an economic, environmental and geopolitical plan. But we'll, we'll leave that for a, another conversation. David, thanks so much for sharing your insights today. We're grateful to have you and look forward to catching up for in a couple of weeks for another episode of From Dialogues. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to this special presentation of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornoski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.